This is the Champions Coffee Podcast on the Vigo Podcast Network. On this show, we take 20 minutes to celebrate the champions behind higher education student support and experience. These are the individuals who are pushing the boundaries and changing student lives on a daily basis. And we get to hear their stories and their visions for the sector. All right, and we are live. Uh, good, good morning, world. Um, welcome to the Champions Coffee Podcast, where every week we have coffee with an education professional who has been out there in the front lines championing students to be all that they can be. I am your host, Ben Hallett, and I am the co-founder and CEO of Vigo. Uh, for those of you who don't know what we do, Vigo is a student support platform that helps educators connect their students to their mentors, tutors, advisors, counsellors, and what we call at Vigo champions. And at Vigo, we really believe in celebrating all the professionals who make all these support uh, programs and services tick, which is why we're doing this podcast. And uh, today, uh, we are most honoured. Um, our guest today almost needs zero introduction. Uh, wherever I go in the world, her name seems to come up as a, as a leader and influencer in the education space. My team and I have had the honour of, of, of working with her over the last uh, five months. And today, we have Emiratus Professor Beverly Oliver. Uh, good morning, Beverly. Good morning, Ben. Great to chat. Yeah. Um, you know, for a bit more of your background, if you don't mind, if I, I give the audience, uh, I've got your bio here. So Beverly uh, is a Principal Fellow of the Higher Education Academy and an Australian National Teaching Fellow. She is a non-executive director at Open Learning and at the International Council of, on Badges and Credentials. Beverly was formerly the Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Education at Deakin University, uh, the Deputy Chair of Universities Australia, Deputy Vice-Chancellors and Deputy Chair of the Board of EduGrowth, uh, which is actually how we first met was through EduGrowth and, and the amazing work that EduGrowth is doing to connect um, great technology, inspire great technology um, with the education space, which Beverly had a big hand in, in getting off the ground, and I'm very thankful for that. Uh, now, Beverly has founded EduBrief, uh, where she works as a higher education consultant, speaker, researcher, focusing on digital education, micro-credentials, curriculum transformation, quality assurance, and graduate employability. Without further ado, again, welcome, Beverly. Thank you, Ben. <laughs> it's exhausting just listening to that. Thank you. <laughs> You've done too much. <laughs> um, not, you can never do too much in education, Ben. 100%. 100%. And um, so, Beverly, do you have your uh, do you have your coffee for the, the coffee podcast? Uh, I have had my tea. Okay, had all right. My, had my tea, yes. But I'm having an imaginary coffee with you, Ben. Okay, I'll, I'll drink two for you. <laughs> um, so uh, for the audience, where, where are you currently in the world? Well, I'm in uh, Melbourne, which is, as you know, um, a confined space at the moment, mm. unfortunately. Mm. So, yeah. And uh, But I think we're about to hear plans to move out and move on. So I think we're all pretty excited about that, Ben. But I do know that this uh, has been really tough on a lot of people, mm. tougher than it has for me, to be honest. But, you know, mm. it's still, I think for everyone, it takes a bit of a toll. Have you um, have you had your uh, your daily outing today? Not yet, no. Not yet, okay. No, Later but on. I will. <laughs> okay. Sun's out, so all is not lost. It's good. Uh, well, fingers crossed for the announcement uh, to come shortly about yeah. opening back up. All right, well, let's jump into it. We are yeah. almost four minutes in already. So 
Beverly, I'd love to hear a bit more about the the life experiences that actually got you into the education space in uh, to begin with. Okay, well, you know, I didn't really mean to end up in education. In fact, I didn't really want to be in education. However, I'm going to relay a light-hearted story that explains my early career in education, and that is uh, when I was a child, I was about, I guess, eight or nine. Uh, I lived in the southwest of Western Australia, and my family were not wealthy, and uh, that's a nice way of saying we were pretty struggling. Okay. My father uh, actually went to the northwest of the state to work on the mines. This was a whole new thing then. So I'm talking pretty old here, you know, Ben. I'm going back a long way. And, uh, in fact, it was 1966. Um, no, actually, it was 1965. And if you know your history, the 14th of February 1966 will mean something to you and not just Valentine's Day. On that year, shall I test you? No. Uh, don't test me. <laughs> no. What happened? We moved to decimal currency. Australia moved All to right. decimal currency. I was a child at school. I was doing special maths lessons, learning about dollars and cents rather than pounds, shillings and pence. Mm -hmm. So I was worried about my dad mm -hmm. because my dad was way up in the north, you know, and who was going to be teaching him? And he wouldn't know what to do when he got back. So when I wrote him my weekly letter, I actually, uh, I was a bit of a nerdy child. I um, organised a page of sums for him so he could actually learn how to do dollars and cents. So I gave him a sheet of homework. And um, I seriously thought this was going to help him, you know, because otherwise he would not do it. Anyway, um, very happily, a week later, I got a letter back from Dad and he'd done his homework, which I got to mark, and he put a 10-shilling note in, in, the, no. in the page with him. And I thought, hey, wow. this is quite lucrative, this education thing. Mm. So I really like to joke that um, that was my entry into distance education. Because you did it for the money, Beverly. Yeah, it's kind of funny story because I sort of had a feeling, and it's never left me actually. To be more serious, um, mm. it's never left me this this feeling and this urgency to help someone learn something to get them better prepared for whatever's coming next. And um, you know, when you do that, you have to do that for yourself too. And I reckon that's what's really important in education. It's actually about helping people to be ready for what's what's needed now and next. Mm -hmm. And that's never been a greater challenge than it is right now. And I, it's also my my philosophy to do with employability in education, which I see as going really hand in hand. They're very important to be working together. Not everyone in my field kind of agrees with that. But to me, it, employability is very broad. It's not just about having a job. It's actually being ready for the world. And ready to make them to find and create meaningful work for yourself and other people, a bit like you, Ben. So you know you're a you're a terrific example of a graduate, really, who has created work not just for yourself but for others. And that's how we all prosper when clever people come up with new ideas and create meaningful work. And that's I think that's terrific. So I got hooked on that early and um, yeah. even though I didn't mean to land in education, I love school, but um, I got hooked on that idea that you can help people be ready for 
whatever's coming at them. Mm. And and a hundred percent the um, the I think I love that you said the word the urgency about that and you know getting ready for what's coming because you know with technology more and more and more we just don't know what's coming in the next five years. It's just it's this the speed of change is just increasing and increasing and increasing and and that really paints the picture of. Um, the importance of um, you know the education uh, institutions and you know it leaves that space for them to be the um, the the guiders of change uh, for lack of a better uh, word. Yeah. Oh, look, if you're really good as a teacher, your students outgrow you, and they come back and teach you. So it's about um, it's about having helping people have a state of mind that. Okay, they know how to learn now, they're off. They will keep learning and they will keep challenging themselves because the world is always changing, that's true. I mean, who would have thought six months ago, 12 months ago that we would be living the way we're living now? This is a new challenge and, you know, the future's been hurtled at us and it is going to be different. Education's going to be different. It's going to need to be different and it needs to be done differently and better. And and you know, is that what has inspired you to to um, stay in the education space and with EduBrief? Is this idea of what's coming next? It is. Uh, so, yes, I decided at the end of twenty eighteen that having had uh, you know quite a long time in higher education, including seven fabulous years at Deakin University, I have to say, uh, I, I was you know thrilled with the things that we achieved while. I was there and, of course, subsequently. But I just felt it was time for me to have a change. So I thought about retiring for a minute and then I just thought, well, I started feeling a bit lost because I'm very driven by purpose and I, I just know my instinct is to remain connected with what, what I now work in, which is the education ecosystem, not just one particular provider. So I work for myself, obviously, but um, basically I, well, having met you and Joel and uh, a few other people through EduGrowth, I decided I wanted to stay in this part of the education ecosystem and help the Edu startups particularly connect with the system because the, the system, higher education or secondary, but I'm more in higher education now, um, it needs people like you. It needs new thinking. It needs new blood, new ideas, new affordances in order to do things better. We can't just keep doing the same old, same old. It kind of is broken, Ben. I mean, it works for a lot of people, but it really needs rethinking. And if people like you and Joel bring fresh energy and ways of delivering essential services to education. So I think uh, that's the space I wanted to be in where I can still kind of educate uh, the people who, are, who want to join the system, if you like. So it's just kind of similar blood, I think. And I'm so grateful that you did do that because over the last five months with everything that has just shaken up in the space, mm. uh, being able to, to get advice from you and to um, and to, to spitball with you and, and to workshop about, well, how are we going to respond to this um, has just been so invaluable. Um, so I'm so glad that you, you did decide to do that. And, and someone like yourself is, is so helpful to education uh, ed tech providers like myself. But uh, that's enough of that. We uh, <laughs> So, I mean, the obviously the space that 
that that we are in and, and most passionate about is the all the student success and support services that can live outside of the, the lecturer to student uh, space and and how good these services can be and uh, what we can do to champion students. I, over your career, I imagine you've been involved in a, a whole multitude of um, these services and uh, programs. Is there any ones in particular that stand out as uh, most memorable to yourself, be it for successful reasons or be it for just individual stories? No, actually, Ben, to be honest, not really. Okay. Um, nothing stands out, put it that way. Although I've worked in three universities that um, all attempted to wrap themselves around the student. Mm. But I think it's very difficult. So um, it's very difficult for a very large siloed institution, as hard as anyone tries, it still works in departments and so on. I often think of support services as a bit like a very large shopping centre. When you walk into a very large shopping centre, every shop says, come over here, I've got this for you. Come over here, oh, hang on, you want X? Come over here, make your way through the maze and we'll give you that service. And I, I don't want to be harsh on colleagues who work in these areas, but I still suspect it's a little bit like that for the student. And I also suspect sometimes we all assume that a student is a kind of a, a stereotype, if you like. Students are, you know, all ages, usually from 18 or even younger to 80, and uh, certainly in higher education. And they all have different needs and ways of engaging. And it's really difficult for a very large organisation to be able to personalise at that scale. And I still think that's what needs to happen more. So I've kind of skirted your question a bit and moved on to where I think it needs to go. And I yeah, do acknowledge yeah. that there's a lot of excellent work done around in the sector. But I just think, um, you know, we've come to expect a whole way of doing things in life that we never did 10 years ago. And it started really, uh, you know, when the smartphone took off 2007, where actually things came to me. You know, if I run out of something in the pantry, I pick up my phone, photograph the barcode, add it to a shopping list, you know, order it, pay for it, bang, it'll turn up on my doorstep a couple of days later. That sort of thing, it's, it's personalized. I don't have to range around the aisles and find things if I don't want to. And it's a bit like that with support, I think. It needs to be the right support at the right time in the right way and in the mode that I'm working in, whatever that happens to be. Mm. I, no, I, I totally agree. I mean, I think what our um, our smartphone overlords have um, done to us is uh, it's, it's made it the intuitive space to go. It's like I need something that something is going to be there somewhere here and you know we more and more learn the skills to and the, the memory pattern to go here and i can tap into it you know on demand or you know just in time uh, to what it is and if i think in the education space if we um we need we need to also be you know complementary to that um to that that behavior that everybody just has built in now and um if it that that is where students are first going to go. Um, so if we can be there as well, um, then that's going to be a very seamless experience for them. 
Um, yeah, uh, that's right. Well, I was thinking, Ben, you know, imagine if this pandemic happened 10 years ago, mm. we would not have been able to do what you and I are doing now. It would have been a very difficult thing to speak face-to-face -face on a screen. So I think we all need a bit of a note to self as well that we still use those terms as if they're different. You know, would, do you want to do it face-to-face -face or do you want to do it uh, online? We are face-to-face -face online right now. So yeah. this is the pandemic has accelerated this too. This is the new way of engaging. We're all doing this with our families more than we were 10 years ago. You know, we now interact. We have conferences this way. We have meetings this way. I know it's driving people crazy. And in many ways, we can't wait to rush back to be humanly proximate to people. However, necessity and accessibility will mean that we will use this mode much more than we might have before. So, mm. you know, that's kind of a really good thing as well. And that's the way we'll have to deliver support. Telehealth, mm. for example, mm. has arrived, you know, and I think it's a good thing. I'd rather, you know, chat this way to a, a GP, for example, and obviously only for some appointments. But, you know, I don't have to sit in a waiting room. I don't have to travel. I don't have to do this. I don't have to do that. So it can be part of the mix. That's where I'm going. And I think, think this has to be part of the mix for the students too. Oh, 100%. And, and, you know, what it does is it it opens up, well, um, I guess a bit more competition in the space as well uh, because, you know, I, we can have these relationships um, and these experiences more aligned now and we are more comfortable with it. So, where can I get that best relationship? Is it here? Is it somewhere? Is it overseas? Is it somewhere else? Um, I think it's it's going to be interesting to see uh, everybody start to realize that maybe the competitive pool um, for students is is expanding out beyond you know the state and the city um, and some more places across Australia, maybe even international as well. Well, you know, that's been happening for a long time, Ben. And, um, you know, it's an invisibility. There are lots of them in our sector. Yeah. It's invisible to people that universities are, you know, when the government writes reports for universities and gives us all the stats and stuff, they often still say, you know, Curtin University, WA. Curtin University, like every other university in Australia, not everyone, but most, Mm. has a large number of students who live on the other side of the country mm. or in the north or in the south, whatever. You cannot assume if you're in Tasmania and you go to a university that it happens to be the University of Tasmania because um, people don't physically walk to a campus. They don't visit a campus anymore. Mm. They are invisibly connected to their university interstate and, of course, as you mentioned, that means uh, one of the stats we don't know, Ben, is how many Australian citizens living in this country actually study online with offshore universities. Mm. You know, there are lots of uh, degrees and MOOCs and short courses and micro-credentials all available right across the world to anyone. If you've got an internet connection, you can learn. It, you know, there's all sorts of difficulties with that. But, yes, digital mm. world really opens up very different possibilities. Mm. Digital. Yeah. And yeah, and opportunities uh, as well. And and um, okay, we, we are we are running out of time. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna yeah, no, it goes so quickly. Uh, we I'll skip to maybe two questions. 
Uh, is there a common misconception that you you, you maybe hear around um, the student success or student um, support space? Well, I'm going to go to, yeah, I, I, I'm going to go back to something I already said, Ben, which, okay. and that's because that's the elephant in the room for me, that, uh, you know, I'll give you an example. A few years ago, about 2016, the Prime Minister at the time, and there have been a few of them, but Malcolm Turnbull, no offence to Malcolm Turnbull, uh, but he he said in a in a speech, and it was reported in the press, too many kids are doing law at uni. And, um, you know, I knew what he meant, obviously. And he could have been right or wrong, but the point is he called university students kids. Mm. The common misperception is that university people, enrolled learners, I'll call them, are all kids. You know, they're 18, young, they're just starting out in life. And admittedly, a very high proportion are, and in some universities more than others. Mm-hmm. But often the learner is not the 18-year-old inexperienced person who doesn't have this or doesn't have that. Often and increasingly, the enrolled learner is a mum in her early 30s and she's got three children and she's studying online, she's having another baby. She oh. engages at 9 o'clock at night or on or online or overnight or whatever. So I guess that's the common misperception, who the customer is, who mm. the student is. That's the one that gets me that... Um, I think we tend to stereotype because we tend to focus on the person we can see. And when we work on a campus, and most people do, then uh, that's the person who fronts up at the counter mm. or the service or whatever it is. And that's not necessarily representative of who we really are. I'll go on to say that those more mature uh, learners other people we need to bring more into the system. The system is very diverse already. Mm-hmm. Uh, our stereotypes don't always account for that. But we need to engage the broader population and the older population right across mm-hmm. the lifespan. That's mm-hmm. what higher education systems should be for. They should be for adult lifelong learners. Um, mm-hmm. So that's where I think we need to go. But that's those are the people already in the system. You know, we... we uh, a common measure of university success is whether uh, a graduate is in full-time employment six months after they've uh, finished their course. Mm. And some universities do very well in those surveys. Good for them. That's fantastic. But that's mm. because their students had a job anyway. They were already in the workforce. So mm. it's not a matter of um, who made the difference to the student to get them into the workforce they were in the workforce so i think mm. that's that's one of the misconceptions that's that's a hobby horse riding by right there yeah okay um that's that's a great one um 100 and that's something i think you've you've really helped us understand more we, we had an appreciation for it but uh our whole team has come we've yeah we've, we've come to appreciate just how much more the, the diversity of the students that we are working with uh, on behalf of the universities um I'm very grateful for that. All right, final question, and I'll, li- I'll limit it to, to two sentences from you maybe, uh, two or three. Um, what advice or encouragement would you give to a student about to begin their journey at university? Wow, two sentences. Um, mm. You can have three maybe. <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> Follow your passion. Do what you're interested in. You and I both know, Ben, that there's legislation going through Parliament as we speak about funding arrangements and, and kind of trying to channel students into certain courses. Now, the sentiment behind that is really good. That is that, you know, as you choose what you're going to study, have an eye on where this is going to go. I'll go back to where I started. What do I need to know now or next in order to deal with what's coming, in order to get meaningful paid or unpaid work or get or find or create? Mm. Um, I think most people do engage in higher education in order to get paid employment. It's an outcome. It's not always the motivator. Mm. Um, so... I think keep an eye on the end game and try and join dots between the things you're really passionate about. If it's technology and music, if those are your two passions, try and join them together. Try and make yeah. something out of that. Yeah. So I, because I think um, I would also say keep it broad. Try not to, and I think this is a tragedy of our education system at the K to 12 level, Try not to lock yourself in too early. Keep it broad. I think the world needs broad, questioning, open, generic thinkers. And because the problems that we're going to be solving and we're sort of trying to solve now are interdisciplinary and they're complex, and that's going to be the challenge that we all inherit. So try to make yourself ready and equipped for that world. And that's not a bad thing. That's how the world is. Go for it. All right, some great advice there. Okay, well, three sentences. Sorry, <laughs> that's, that's right. I wasn't. I stopped counting. Um, all right, so we've come to our fifteen-minute cutoff uh, point, uh, twenty-five minutes in, and we'll need to wrap up. So, um, Beverly, thank you so much for having coffee with me today, or watching me uh, drink coffee, um, and uh, and sharing your stories and your advice and visions. Uh, this has been episode three of the Champions Coffee podcast. Uh, thank you for everyone who will be listening in the future. Um, and if you'd like to stay updated on the next episode, please just go to the Vigo LinkedIn and uh, follow that page. We'll be putting all the announcements out there. But thank you very much, Beverly. Lovely to chat, Ben. Thank you. Bye. All right.